0: You know, I'm not sure we're going to decentralize all the things tomorrow, but... Yeah,
1: I don't think so as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I constantly fascinated, especially at an event like this in East Denver, by the creativity yeah. and yeah. the excitement and also just the talent that comes into this space true. from wherever it is. Mm. People from all walks of life are just stopping what they're doing and going, I, I've got it. I'm going down a rabbit mm. hole. I'm going to get into this and I'm just going to like get yeah. excited. And that's that passion is yeah. something that's... It's, it's hard to replicate. <laughs>
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Encrypto Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and crypto assets. I'm your host, Ahmed Bilaghi. I was in Denver, Colorado, recently for the amazing ETH Denver event. That was my first time in Colorado as well, and I absolutely loved it. I went to the Red Rocks, big up Red Rocks, absolutely enjoyed going up those mountains. And I was also very fortunate to catch up with Dr. Steven Waterhouse from Orchid. And in this discussion, me and Seven, yes, he also goes by that name too, we discussed what AI looked like in the 1990s, how he helped build Pantera Capital, how him being SIM swapped led to build the Orchid protocol and how Orchid is literally revolutionising the VPN space. I'd really like to thank those who have been supporting the show and remember you can support us in any way possible. You can subscribe, rate, and review the show, share the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. And now on to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Encrypto podcast. My name is Ahmed Bilaghi, and I'm right here in Denver, Colorado. First time ever. Really interesting place. I'm here for the ETH Denver Hackathon. And today with me is a special guest, Dr. Stephen Waterhouse. Say hello. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you finding ETH Denver? It's very fun. It's like the
0: all the really fun things about a conference that I enjoy.
1: Okay, uh, like
0: like hanging out with friends and yeah. meeting new people and chatting. Yeah. And seeing people build things and testing things and talking mm. and so on without any of the suits.
1: Without without the suits, right? (laughs) So I'm airbnb with a friend who's from Dubai as well, and he must have come into the conference with a suit. And I'm like, mate, what are you doing? I didn't even realize because he was wearing a lot of like...
0: It's actually kind of a fun statement though. Right, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's good to be just a little bit off-brand.
1: That is true. Because then everyone knows you. It's like, oh, go touch the guy in the suit. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. That is a marketing signal at least. Cool. So you're the CEO and co-founder of Orchid. Yes. And you have been doing quite a lot of things in the tech space for quite a long time. Yeah, I'm right? I'm, I'm very old. Yeah, well, you, you, <laughs> you seem very young at the same time as well. Yeah. <laughs> but what I like to know, I mean, I looked a bit into your background and you've been doing, you know, AI stuff before it was called AI, it looked like. And I wanted to just hear about that experience. Because at least in Dubai we have like, you know, we have a minister of artificial intelligence. Oh wow. So is like he, they're they like is super he real or is he No, real. no, it's real. <laughs> is, is he a real thing? He's a real He's thing. Yeah. Are you sure? He's a person, 100 percent sure. 100% yeah. sure. Okay. Well, maybe you might might need mm, to ask mm, him mm, to mm. make sure. But they, they actually should make a virtual AI mm. to be like a, a co-minister. Yeah. <laughs> that's a cool it's like that's the a Japanese cool idea. pop stars. <laughs> that's actually a rad right idea. So you like did all this AI stuff early on, just before the tech boom, mm. and how different is AI from when you started it and sort of deployed it to what is it is now?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So I was focused on from I guess like the early 90s till I guess the early 2000s, doing a lot of work in machine learning, as we like to call it, yeah. specifically with neural networks. And the application I was focused on was speech recognition. Okay. And the ironic thing now is is that because my accent is very I guess mid Atlantic. I live in San Francisco, but I'm from England. Who uh, oh, are you? Yeah, I could not tell. Well, there you go. see <laughs> so, <laughs> I can do all sorts of English accents, but the the irony now is, is that systems like Siri, yeah, just have no idea what to do with me, and so I, I have <laughs> I have to put on an American yeah. accent in order to be understood. Okay, which very amuses my kids no end. The I guess the big change was that back then there was sort of a, a competition between our lab in Cambridge. We had two groups that were doing really like in the top three or four mm-hmm. um, internationally in the speech recognition competitions run yeah. by DARPA. And the, and the conspiracy theory back then was that the NSA had already figured out speech recognition and was funding it to lead people down the wrong path. Interesting. Um, but, you know, like it's another conspiracy theory to yeah. I love. And uh, back then there was there was definitely the leading systems were not based around neural networks, mm-hmm. which we now think of as we call it deep learning. That's mm-hmm. you know, kind of new, the new term. Our system was, and... The advantage of our system was that it was much faster to to do the recognition like yeah. in real time. Faster than real time. But it took much longer to train. Yeah. Right. So like to build the models and so on. And yeah. it was also kind of in some ways a lot simpler. Um, mm-hmm. Once you built out the right architecture, you just threw data at it. You didn't have to kind of tune it too much. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today. So today what's happened is the hardware is just so much better. So the systems that I was doing experiments on. You start an experiment during a PhD, mm. and you have to design it really carefully because okay. it took three months to run. Oh, wow. Right, So you're sitting there three months later, You know, like, did you get it right, did you get it wrong, the system crashes, you know, kind of building software that actually had redundancies in it and you had mm-hmm. to kind of recover from failures was part of all of the yeah. work we did there. So really a lot of the earlier work, which was alternative to deep learning, has been used but somewhat thrown away in in favor of just big enormous deep learning systems with just an enormous number of connections in the the networks yeah and you throw data at it and it just figures it out and another area this was shown to be very effective in is things like google translate which is translating languages yeah um in the past there was more kind of rule-based systems where you sort of built rules and teach those how to learn systems and now that's much more based around deep learning approaches interesting but a lot of the core algorithms are very similar there was some optimizations made for like highly connected deep learning architectures. Uh, this is getting very technical now, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. in the last couple of years, that was what really led to this big boom in deep learning and people started doing okay. really, really amazing things with
1: that. Is that. Would you say that's sort of the, the tipping point? I think
0: that was the tipping point. There's a lot of the work by uh, Jeff Hinton up in Toronto, where he worked with various people in his lab, uh, nice. including Mike Jordan, mm. during my PhD. So yeah, there was kind of like a lot of interesting work done back in the day and then mm. improvements upon that. Yeah, but a lot of it is the hardware and the capabilities of things you can do. And then, of course, the tooling and all the systems that are much easier to just build things on now. Back then, we kind of coded everything ourselves from scratch.
1: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And what about ethics? Did you ever look into ethics?
0: Well, it was interesting ethically. So in my lab, it was called the speech, vision and robotics lab. I was focused, I was focused on speech. (laughs) Okay. But vision was one of the things that people were working on, including early face recognition systems. And, you know, I tried friends who were building those systems and from a, From the system, the stuff I work on now around surveillance and anti-surveillance and and privacy, that is obviously a very interesting ethical issue. Yeah, because the
1: the protests in Hong Kong, right, they're like covering not just their faces, but their ears as well, so that Mm -hmm. nothing could...
0: Oh, and then there's your gait, so the way you walk is actually an indicator of... If you look at sort of one of my friends, Ramaz Nam, who wrote the Nexus books, Nexus and Apex, and in his books he talks about being able to recognize people by the gait of their walk and they give one of the guys like one shoe that's higher than the other so that it like <laughs> artificially messes up his his walking stance.
1: Cool, all right, interesting. So fast forward to sort of around twenty like 2012, 2013, I believe that's when you got into crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, what first, what made you look into it? What's the thing that that really excites you about it?
0: Well, there's two different questions. Um, yes, that's true. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm a little longer in the tooth than, than the number of people in, in crypto, especially entrepreneurs. And people sometimes ask me for, career advice, which I always think is rather strange, because I never really thought I had much of a career. But it's all been a very much a, kind of trying to find interesting things to do, Yes, um, because yeah. if you're not doing something that's interesting to you and you're passionate about, then you get really bored and you start wanting to do something else. So there's always been a driving force in terms of what I was interested in. I got into crypto because after many years as an entrepreneur, I, I, I finally got to the point where I'd taken a company public as a, as a co-founder. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, I finally reached this echelon of now I can become a VC. So. Yeah where my friends and I started a, uh, a venture fund. We kind of got aqua hired into Fortress um, mm. fairly fast as we were fundraising. And at Fortress I was focusing on something and I was just like not that excited about what I was doing as yeah. much anymore. I'd been doing it for a long time, so I was just like, this subject area is just not that exciting. So I went out to Pete Brigger and I was like, hey, I think I might go do something else. And so he said to me, why don't you come back in a few weeks and see if you got another idea. So I went and talked to some friends of mine, including one of my friends, who'd been like a real sort of cypherpunk kind of hacker yeah. kind of type that I'd known from the early dot-com days and he said, why don't you check out Bitcoin? Because he'd been into it for a couple of years and was just kind of, you know, thought it was cool. And I said, okay. So I started looking at it, didn't really dig into it that deeply, but just Mm -hmm. went back to Pete and I said, hey, about this Bitcoin thing, that seems cool. (laughs) And so we started looking at it and they'd already started looking at it with Pete and also Mike Novogratz and Mm -hmm. Wences, Zaras, was good friends with Pete. That was sort of the beginning of a lot of this wave of Silicon Valley investors and people who kind of wanted to really speculate on something interesting, but also in speculation, a lot of these people found something very fascinating about this idea. And so we started working on kind of like a cryptocurrency fund at Fortress, And in May of that year, brought in Dan Moorhead, who'd had a lot of experience running hedge funds, mm. and he was also very interested in it. So together, we started working on what eventually became Pantera, but mm. initial, initially was mostly a Fortress project.
1: So Pantera came out of Fortress? I mm, mean, kind
0: of sort of. I mean, for, of. For Fortress, Fortress backed us, along with Benchmark and Ribbit, and for many months we were incubated with the Fortress team. So then what was fascinating to me was just being at the beginning of something. I mean, it wasn't the beginning, and in fact, in 2013, I thought I'd missed it because you know Bitcoin had already gone to 100. So I was like, oh, you know, I guess I guess this yeah, is right. over. <laughs> and so my thought was, well, the, the really interesting things to do were to you know try and build companies, try and invest in these things. Dan saw it very rightly as something that was going to continue to be worth a lot. So we had two sides to this. We had the the long long only fund for Bitcoin. And then we had the venture fund, nice. and we did both things simultaneously. And then in 2014, we started really focusing on the second venture fund mm. and raising money for that, trying to convince LPs yeah. that this thing was more than just something really sketchy. Yeah. And if you think about, if entrepreneurs are the most savvy, and VCs are then a little bit less savvy, although you know they, they tend to think they're really savvy too, then LPs of venture funds are. Sorry to my LP friends, but they are are just naturally the the least savvy because they're looking at so many things. It's just kind of entrepreneurs get to look at one thing. Mm -hmm. VCs have to look at a lot of things. LPs look at lots and lots and lots and lots of things. So by, by virtue of just your focus area, you can't be that deep into it. So that was a very challenging period of raising that fund. We were raise, raising and then continually deploying from 2013 to 16. Mm. But we got to really see hundreds of companies every year and screen them and understand them, meet just incredible entrepreneurs, and do some really interesting deals. One of the most interesting things we did, which was interesting, was we were very early in Zcash. Okay. So I got to hang out with Zuko in the kind of formative yeah. phases of that, and also Naval, who was working very closely with New Zuko on that. And that was a very interesting thing to do for what was, we were really one of the first institutional investors with a kind of Wall Street brand. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we're investing in this decentralized yeah. private currency. So that was a very interesting moment. Also the transition from the idea of Bitcoin being a store of value to the sort of blockchain in general being something that could be interesting to build applications from and start really getting into many, many more applications.
1: Yeah. Okay, and what, what would be the one thing that you would say that keeps you excited about this space?
0: I think there's a lot There's a lot of things. Obviously with my focus now at ORCID, I think a lot about privacy and I think a lot about the capability of a lot of the things we're building to really break that system of control. And I, I've given this talk a couple of times, talking about the idea of the point of decentralization is to break centralized systems of control. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like Albert Wenger from USV talks about this idea of when people look at applications, they uh, new, new technology innovations, they tend to take applications that worked really well in the old the old technology model and bring them over to the new technology model. And it's like, and now add Bitcoin or now add, now add blockchain and everything will be fine. And we've seen this happen before in sort of the, the Web 1.0 boom. People try to take lots of things that just really just add .com and hopefully everything's fine. Mobile, same thing, and now with blockchain we're doing the same thing. What you really want to do, and that's what Albert talks about, is think about the fundamental properties of the new technological innovation and then what's naturally supposed to be on that system. And, and then build so, from that. And build from that, right? So Bitcoin disrupts the centralized systems of control of banking and nation states. Mm-hmm. Right? You think about that kind of a fundamental aspect of it. Ethereum, and now Ethereum's doing lots of other th- interesting things now, but the first real use case for Ethereum was decentralizing and breaking the system of control of the old boys' club of VCs in Silicon Valley and other places, mostly Silicon Valley. In other words, you could have an idea, you could be terrible at raising money normally, but you could have this great idea, have a good team, and do this fundraising thing. Right, which we called ICOs back then, and then suddenly get going, and just like in any technological boom or innovation cycle, most of the stuff is not going to work. But a couple of things do, and. Those things that do hopefully Mm. make the whole thing worth it, right? And it doesn't mean that it doesn't suck. Of course it sucks if people have put their money at risk and so on and and lost it because, Mm -hmm. you know, of the, of the company or it's, or they made a bad choice and so on. And I have compassion for that, but it's just natural. This happens every time you go, go all the way back to the, to the railways of the late 1800s. It's the same kind of thing. And so. We look at what we're doing, and, and I really get excited about it, decentralizing systems of control of communications. Mm-hmm. So that is a continual thing I keep yeah. thinking about. And then you know, I'm not sure we're going to decentralize all the things tomorrow, but yeah,
1: I don't think so as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: I, I constantly fascinated, especially at an event like this in East Denver, by the creativity yeah. and the excitement, and also just the talent that comes into this space. That's true. From wherever it is, mm. people from all walks of life are just stopping what they're doing and going. I, I've got it. I'm going down a rabbit mm. hole. I'm going to get into this, and I'm just going to like get yeah. excited. And that's that passion is yeah. something that it's it's hard to replicate. You, you don't find that's that. That's true. You can't. It's
1: very difficult, especially like in I'm sure in the AI space. It's very difficult to find that same passion, or even other emerging technologies. Mm-hmm. It's it's not easy to find that same passion or curiosity, mm-hmm. or people going down that rabbit hole. But what I did find interesting, at least from come to Denver, was. I find there to be a lot of there's a lot of attention towards concepts like DAOs, which mm-hmm. I which I understand it's important. I just think it's unnecessary attention because of all the other things that should be solved in the space, like DAOs are probably ten years, you know, away from actual any meaningful mainstream adoption, but there is still so much that we that we've got to focus on and actually solve. I don't know if you've you know, have that similar thought or, but that is just something that I, because yeah. I see it on Twitter, but Twitter's, you know, people just, you know, the keyboard warriors. Everything so is
0: true that people write on Twitter, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but really, then you, it's, you realize that, right? Yeah, well. Yeah,
1: it's okay. always true. <laughs> it's
0: always true. There's no fake news. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. There's definitely always a flavor of the day. I think any hot technology sector is subject to fashion. We saw this with, you know, outside of our own space, we saw this with virtual reality. Yeah. Suddenly virtual reality is going to be everywhere. And then augmented reality, we're going to have Google Glasses, and it's going to be, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to be in minority report before we know it, right? And people get really excited about it. Mm. There's conferences on it. There's investment on it. There's mm. entrepreneurs yeah. dropping everything to do it. And then it kind of fizzles, or we sort of forget about it. And then before you know it, mm. suddenly there's something that actually does it. And I think that... In the case of DAOs, I think it is interesting. We, we actually, not to kind of harp back to our own stuff, but we actually have an application for DAOs in our okay. system. So actually people will be, consumers will actually be interacting with DAOs. Okay. They already are in okay. our system. Yeah, so there I think there are some practical applications. They may not be mm. Systems that are running the European Union, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, yeah. or those things from day one. So, but small scale, people, small scale, the scenes, you know, useful ideas, thinking. little ideas, small scale things. I think that's where you start seeing these these small adoptions, yeah. and then you start building out standards for those things, and yeah. people get used to them. And do you want a communist style or a fascist style mm. or yeah, like yeah. A egalitarian brow? Like what kind of DAO do you want? And this cool. sort of flavors of the day as to what works or not. Uh, I think the. Possibly could be a little bit too much investment in tooling for those things, because yeah. there's only gonna be one or two systems that really win, and maybe they'll just be an open source free project, so that, yeah. that might be a bit too much.
1: Cool, awesome. So tell us about Orchid, at least starting from the why, and how you guys are doing it.
0: Yeah, sure, so I mean, I've mean, i hinted a little bit about yeah. um, perhaps my worldview. So the why is that after leaving Pantera in 2016, I was very focused and really activated by a number of things around my concerns around surveillance, mm-hmm. censorship, and what it meant to be private today actually my, my friend zuko had a, a good comment when we were starting orchid he said if you get this right then the internet if you're using orchid might be the last place you could be private and it, it's an interesting counterpoint so think yeah. about we're all very concerned about privacy on the internet but if you walk through denver airport or you walk through the streets of london you're constantly being monitored by closer yeah. cameras and everything else and there's aspects- even when
1: i park my car it's just saving my mm-hmm. parking you know
0: Yep. And so now you're trading your privacy for convenience and we we make that choice all the time and it's sometimes it's explicit and sometimes most of the time it's it's just we just don't know it's implicit Mm. so I I had this kind of dinner party stump speech and people used to kind of wheel me out at dinner parties and Mm. say oh you know tell me about you know why we're not safe and so I would talk about this idea of well what if one day and this was I guess 2016 right so before some of the world events that happened afterwards. But what if one day we unfortunately elected somebody who turned out after some terrible incident to be a yeah. de- despot dictator. Next thing we have a new set of regulations around privacy and all the encrypted messaging apps are shut down or censored in some way. Mm. And then 10 years later, we realize that we've reached a point of no return. We just can't organize to even even peacefully protest about it. Like what we're going to do, send carrier pigeons around to like get your mates to come hang out. It's yeah. like everything gets censored. It's yeah. like, let's go meet in you know, Capitol Hill to talk about this. It's like, oh, sorry, that message just doesn't go through. Yeah. So this kind of general concept of there being no alternatives and no one's really kind of building these things and or very few people are really focusing on it. Obviously there are exceptions like Signal and so on, but mm. this sort of the idea of having a decentralized capability of communicating was something I was very concerned about. And then this is always an interesting conversation to have, but in late 2016 I got SIM swapped or phone ported. And that experience of directly feeling what it was like that the internet it's a different application with the internet, which just wasn't this friendly, secure place that you thought it was. Yeah, led me down a rabbit hole that ended up resulting in looking very carefully at VPN space. And like a lot of people, I hadn't really thought about which VPN to use. Yeah, I just kind of picked one that my friend had told me. Yeah, and I and really. Plus,
1: you live. I assume you used to live in the states, right? Like that's I still do. Tai yeah, tai so it's so the so same, same thing. Yeah. You don't really need to use a VPN. Whereas other places, well, I used to live in China. Yeah, live in Dubai. There are some aspects where people need to use VPN. Yeah, so. it's like need versus versus want, yeah. right? Yeah, so exactly.
0: There are strong reasons to use a VPN even today in the US. For example, uh, interesting. the public Wi-Fi that uh, oh, yeah. we're actually sponsoring here at the the Denver event. Even though we're sponsoring it, we can't guarantee what the servers are they're doing That's it and the Wi-Fi thing. Mm-hmm. Someone could plug into that Wi-Fi router and just suck down the traffic, right? Okay. So you should be using a VPN every time you connect. And what to would you.
1: that circumstance be like? What would the consequence be of sucking all that traffic? Like, what, what does that mean?
0: Well, I could, if I had the right kind of tools, mm-hmm. I could figure out. At least for the unencrypted traffic, which is actually a significant portion of of traffic today, we yeah. t- we tend to think that all our traffic's encrypted because we think all the websites are SSL enabled. Yeah. But the number of times you look and it's not SSL enabled, okay, you know, sort of uh, HTTPS, TLS, and so on that's used in websites is pretty high. And then in addition, there's a lot of data, a lot of internet traffic that is not SSL mm. and requires unencrypted traffic. So. The idea, and that there's many exploits that are published every year in in Vegas at DEF CON Mm. of what you can do if you can sniff someone's traffic and like sitting on a router and looking Mm. at it, and there's even exploits around things like Google Maps. So if I can look at where you're trying to be and other information like that, I can also look at like different search terms mm. or, oh, you're publishing on Substack and I can see what your username is. I can start correlating pretty fast yeah. who you are. And as you went back into the point earlier of machine learning and big data and AI, mm. you don't even need to do it by hand. Yeah. You can write scripts to do this. So That's true. If I could literally sit and just grab all the data from your phone and take a look at it, mm. I'd have a pretty good idea of what you're doing. Okay. So there's strong reasons to use VPNs in those situations. And yeah, that rabbit hole of getting down and looking really carefully at the VPN space made me realize that one thing is that even today, if you if you ask me which VPN you should be using, you know, I'll say, or you should the a client, of course, but which VPN service, it's very much a question that I answer by saying things like, "Well, I know these guys, and I've researched these guys really well, and I've heard these guys aren't so good." Yeah. And there's a report about these guys actually selling the data, and these guys are logging the data even though they say they aren't. And I think these guys might have state control. Mm. And so it's very much a if you know the right person to help you. And yeah. today there are affiliate sites which tell you which ones to go use, and some of them are very good. others of them are kind of pay-to-play, right? Mm. So. There's bias in there, and this is very much similar to the days of search engines before Google is that the idea of, well, which such an should I use, and it's like, well, Altivist is good, and Metacrawl is better, mm. and this is good, and so on. So you just don't know. because Sounds like
1: the wallet played today. The, yeah, it's like which the one do you use? It's, it's, it's,
0: it's, what your, it's what your mate tells you. Your, yeah. your, your geeky mate tells you what to do. Mm. So there's very little transparency. There's a couple of open source-ish solutions out there. Yeah. You can roll your own things and so on, but with Orchid, we're, we are open source. We're transparent in the way we do it. And the other thing that I noticed and I was thinking about is that what if it was decentralized in the sense that what if I could choose between thousands of providers, and those thousands of providers might not necessarily always be the biggest guys you've ever heard of. Sometimes it's just like a little mom and hop shop who run a data center, but they're really trustworthy and they're cool. And then what if you could add in the capabilities such that it didn't matter if someone was logging, because the IP information was hidden. It was kind of much, much harder to correlate, if sometimes impossible, to correlate the information about what someone was looking for with the information about who they were. So this kind of general thinking process of what if we could do this yeah. uh, led us with my co-founders, to design this system and you know, it's like a little over, I guess, two and a half years ago we started working on this idea and nice. now we just launched it in December.
1: Awesome. How's that going so far?
0: It's going great. So we're available on Android and command line for all the major platforms and coming out with some really good new interfaces for mobile and also for desktop. Mm-hmm. And awesome. it's, it's actually growing quite rapidly. And
1: Can you share stats like users and stuff like that? Or
0: uh, Yeah, we'll, we'll be publishing some of that stuff okay. soon, but it's actually growing at quite a fast pace. But we, we launched right before Christmas. So it's actually been very nice, this period of engaging with the very earliest users. And we're a very agile company in the way we adapt and, and change and mm-hmm. learn from experiences with people. We're doing a lot of, of kind of onboarding of influencers so that they get get it on their devices yeah. and then they can start telling other people. We've built in things like QR code scanning now. Yeah. So you can share your ORCID account from one device to another, or I can share it with you right now. I can give okay, you cool. access to my account and that'll be not my data but my funds. I mean like, hey, let's let's share accounts and you can have some of my funds to, to run your Orchid device. Okay. So we're doing kind of little little things like that and just awesome. generally focused on first of all just trying to make it much, much easier to use, which is is as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, like a design problem and crypto yeah. it become kind of challenging because you've got to have a, a wallet, you've got to have a yeah. DAP browser, and you've got to have Orkut, and you've got to interact between those three, three yeah. things. So yeah, yeah. that general design experience, th- there are ways around it if you kind of punt on the really decentralized aspect of it, but if you try and make it really decentralized, which is incredibly important for us mm. from a privacy standpoint, then it, 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 it is be challenging very, to do very this. challenging,
1: yeah. Yeah, and this is something that, at least from my own personal capacity at By Economy that we're, we're sort of looking into very much is the idea of meta-transactions and a relay network that basically abstracts the gas costs for the end users. Oh, cool, so that cool. they're cool. able to just you know easily play the staff or actually use this application or wallet very seamlessly. So we are very well aware of, of all mm. these intricacies when it comes to these experience. I'm interested in learning a bit more about the economics of Orchid. And then just delving into that for a bit before we finish off. Just because i like to hear from like how you guys perceived it, I have a couple questions about just the utility aspects of it as well. So yeah, how are the economics constructed?
0: Well, it's just, just a very simple system. It is a peer-to-peer marketplace for bandwidth. And so Orchid takes no cuts of that transaction. Uh, we're not part of the transaction at all. We're providing the client software. We've provided the smart contracts in the network. And we provide the software for the node providers to run. So the economics are as simple as you, as a user using a client, are paying for the provision of bandwidth and the routing of those things to a particular node provider, and that's it. <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a relatively simply designed system. Yeah, obviously, there's a couple of very important distinctions, which is that. Orchid is not only a system using cryptocurrency technologies based mm-hmm. on Ethereum, with smart contract design, etc., but is also a network security mm-hmm. um, piece of software. And that's separate and then it's, it's weaved in with the way mm-hmm. we do the, the crypto. So if you think about it from an abstract perspective, you go all the way back to something like CryptoKitties or mm-hmm. the ICO, so when people not lots of ICOs, it really ground Ethereum down and made it very, very slow. Gas costs rose, transactions slowed down. So as we looked at building something which was going to operate on orders of magnitude faster, like we're talking data networking speeds, yeah. which is yeah, like much course. faster than what we think about in terms of normal monetary stuff. So we had to design something which would accommodate that on Ethereum, which is the, the platform we chose primarily because of just based how widespread the tooling were, the amount of developers, mm-hmm. and also how decentralized and, and really from mm-hmm. decentralized from the ground up it was. So the idea there was using what we called nanopayments, mm-hmm. which some people in the past have called micropayments. That was kind of an overloaded term, so mm-hmm. we, we choose this new, new term for it. And these nanopayments are probabilistic. So what that means is that if you're the node provider and I'm a client, I'm sending you payment, but only one of those payments is actually going to be something that's worth something. Right? The rest of them are not. And it's done on a probabilistic basis, so it's kind of like a, a little bit like a lottery, if you imagine. Mm-hmm. So one of those things is a winning ticket. Mm-hmm. That ticket is then worth a lot of oxt and on an expected value an oxt is, uh, is a currency token. Yeah. yeah so on an expected value over time you're going to get the same as a node provider you're going to get the same amount of payment as you would have done if i'd actually been paying you with tiny amounts of oxt each, each for each mm-hmm. thing so because it's designed we can embed the payments with the packets so every packet has a piece that has a payment embedded with it okay which means we can It actually helps with a lot of the kind of game theory and attack vector stuff, which we've talked a lot about in our white paper in detail, but in sort of more digestible form in a number of blog posts we've done recently.
1: Okay. So is the Orca token now currently trading? On markets, yeah.
0: So just after we launched, Coinbase provided support mm. on their exchange, okay. and there has been a couple of other smaller ones that have, have since done that.
1: And do you see that a utility token like Yield should have a price that fluctuates and not a price pegged to a stablecoin, for example?
0: Well, I guess I think about it as a bit like uh, if you think about you know kind of what's the price of oil, right? If you're a farmer and you want to like fuel your tractors. Like the price of oil goes up and down. So mm. in order to, to work around that, you want to make sure that oil is available and, and you can buy and sell this stuff really easily. Yeah. So we kind of go back to the, the specific example of node provider. If you're a node provider in our system and you're spending your local currency, let's say it's US dollars, on the servers, on the bandwidth, yeah. on the people who are going to run it, right, and you're receiving OXT, the, the Orchid currency, so you need to have a mechanism to easily liquidate that and pay your costs in dollars. Because we're not anticipating that people get paid in an OXT anytime soon, right? Because like, we're not in that game. So yeah. we, we think, so you've got to pay those costs in, in real dollars. So from our perspective, it's very important that there is good liquidity and availability in whatever area we want to run this thing because we're very focused on the application of this thing. We're we're an application focused company. So yeah, so we're we're excited whenever somebody who has an exchange is looking to support OXT in their country, primarily for the reason that it allows us to then make things available to no providers and to users so users can get hold of the OXT, providers can then sell the OXT and pay their, their bills. Because it's then available in those areas, then just like anything that's traded, it's going to have volatility. Do
1: do you think that, because at least with oil volatility to end users, like I'm filling up my car Mm -hmm. is not so much, but with the current prices of crypto and Mm -hmm. how we've seen, you know, you see tokens going down 90% of value, you know, if I'm some client and you're no provider and I'm sort of purchasing these tokens, I have to purchase these tokens in order to get the services. Isn't this Mm -hmm. like an extra step? And it's like sort of a bit redundant in the, on the UX side?
0: I mean, there's sort of the, there's a number of questions there, so unpacking that. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, so, on the UX side, if the concern is one of volatility in terms of I buy something and then the amount of bandwidth mm-hmm. that that purchase is going to get me might be changing, then just like as we're seeing in the sort of advancement of DeFi and so on, I can imagine things like derivatives and other hedging tools could be used there to, to do stabilization. Mm. So another example is, our architecture is built so it's a pay-as-you-go model. So you, mm-hmm. you buy OXT, and once you've used it up, you need to go get some more. So it's pay-as-you-go. Yep. Now most VPNs are sold on a subscription basis. And sometimes people say to me, why didn't you design subscription into the protocol? I was like, well, you don't want to design subscription into the protocol. You just put pay-as-you-go in the protocol, because subscription and protocol kind of doesn't make any sense. But you could always layer subscription on top of yeah, the business model. Yeah. So in the same sense of saying, well, why isn't it just a stable coin? I was like, well, stable coins are just derivatives. On top of existing things that go up and down, right? So,
1: yeah, but it's just more, those things are way more stable than a new currency. But yeah, okay, it's just more so from the end user, right? You know, having to go and, for example, open a Coinbase account and actually purchase, and then Mm -hmm. it's just sort of a, you know, could be up to 20 steps for that end user. I completely agree. And, which is, I guess, something that in time, I guess, would be resolved. Yeah,
0: I can imagine that other people, including perhaps ourselves, might be looking at different ways to to solve the problem.
1: Cool, awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we end the podcast?
0: No, it's just been very nice to, to chat to you. Cool. Uh, if anybody wants to get more information about Orchid, it's on our website, which is just orchid.com, mm-hmm. and all the links to get in touch and uh, follow us there. The software is available, mm-hmm. and we look forward to any feedback anybody has and suggestions.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably start using Orchid. Great. Um, I'll, say, I'll say I'll set you right now. <laughs> well, I don't know if I should, because in Dubai it's kind of illegal. But and um, maybe I'll start using <laughs> okay Zip <laughs> cool thank you so much Stephen for coming to the show thank you thank you